Our scripture reading today is from Romans 12, 3 through 21, and Galatians 6, 10. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who could contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So then, as we have opportunity let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the word of the Lord. No, is this on? Check one, two, there we go. Um, we have been looking at passages of Scripture that have this, this word or a couple of words in the Scriptures that uh, talk about being zealous. And Titus 2.14 tells us that we are to be a people that are zealous for good works. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works, we've been saying every week. And I wanted to close out this series uh, today talking about um, the church and the starting point 
of where God calls us to do good works, because there's a feeling uh, at times when we, we talk about, we've talked about very challenging things. This has been a very challenge-heavy series. I think uh, most people would agree. Hearing challenges about the poor, about the lost and our evangelism, about the name of God that we're supposed to be zealous for. Um, and there's, there can be a feeling of overwhelm and a feeling of burden that comes from this. And I wanted to close today by talking about, well, where do we start? What's the, what's the starting point? How does this work in God's economy that we would do good works? I mean, when you, when you walk into a world that is full of, of, of opportunities to do good, where do you even roll up your sleeves? How do you even start to have those kinds of conversations and that focus? And so we're going to close out today by saying we're, we're going to start here in the church of God, and it's going to go out to the ends of the earth And uh, so we're closing out today, and next week we're going to begin. I'm excited about our series in the book of Ruth in the Old Testament for a few weeks, so that'll be next week. Before we close out today, let's go to the Lord and ask His help in prayer. Father, we believe that even the reading of Your Word is effective for salvation, for growth, and just hearing your commands to us this morning in Romans and Galatians. We are challenged, Lord, to do good. To be the type of people that you've called us to be. And I pray, Lord, that with all of the commands that Scripture gives us, there would not be a feeling of burdensomeness because we know that your commands are not burdensome. Your Word tells us that. But rather, what would be is a sense of awe and invitation and delight that you have called us to be so different. And that you yourself have empowered us to be different by Jesus Christ giving himself for the life of the world. And so it's him that we cling to. It's your grace, your abundance that drives us. And I pray, Lord, that from that abundance we would see what's around us to do good as your word commands. Would you help us this morning as we look at your word in Jesus' name? Amen. So a, a few weeks ago I read uh, the, the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. Uh, you know Benjamin Franklin, founding father of the United States. And um, you know, if you subscribe to, the, uh, to what's called sometimes the great man uh, theory of, of history, uh, great people, men and women who contribute to uh, you know, advancing society, you would have to say that Benjamin Franklin was one such great man. I mean, his autobiography alone, and he tries to be somewhat, you know, uh, you know if you read other biographies about him, then, then they say even more, he's somewhat modest at times, not so much modest, but you can see that his life was full of good works that changed society. I mean, the man invented a certain type of heating stove uh, that saved hundreds, maybe thousands of lives because they would have these fires in the homes and the heating stove that was to heat the house was inefficient and would burn the house down. And he invented this and he could have patented it, but he didn't patent it because he wanted it to be, in his words, for the good of mankind. He invented the lightning rod. You know that story, perhaps. You, he invented bifocals for glasses. Some people don't know this. He actually invented the flexible catheter. 
If you know what that is, flexibility in that regard was certainly good for humanity, right? Schools, orphanages, hospitals, libraries. He popularized the, uh, the volunteer fire department. He invented for his street street sweeping. I mean, the guy was full of good works. Now, what's interesting, what I found fascinating about reading this biography was his relationship with um, George Whitfield, who was the great awakening preacher. If you know George Whitfield, he was this uh, English preacher. He came to America. He preached to 25,000 30,000 crowds using no amplification with his voice, just this amazing preacher. And it's a little known fact that Benjamin Franklin was friends with George Whitfield, and he liked to hear Whitfield preach, even though Ben Franklin did not go to church and did not uh, consider himself a Christian in that sense. He was a deist. He believed in the divine. He believed that there was a source of good, but he did not believe in what he called a particular sect of, of Christianity. But he was friends with Whitfield. And so, What's interesting about that is that Whitfield also did good works. Um, There's an orphanage that Whitfield started that's the longest-running orphanage in America. It's still open today. So you look at these two men, very different in their starting places, and yet they both did good works. What is the difference between them? Well, in the biography, there was a little anecdote that I thought was so telling about these two men. In the story... Uh, Ben Franklin writes that one time George Whitfield had written a letter to him saying, I'm coming to visit Philadelphia um, and, and, uh, you know, uh, have some work there to do, and I was wondering if you could recommend a place to stay. And Franklin responded to him and said, well, that's easy. You can stay at my house with me. And Whitfield said, uh, wrote back to him and said, that's a kind offer. If you would consider doing that for Christ's sake, I would be so happy. Well, Benjamin Franklin couldn't leave it at that. He wrote him back another letter saying, well, what I wanted to tell you is that I am not doing it for Christ's sake. I'm doing it for your sake. And then he gives a little insight into the way that he thinks about good works. He said, for Christians, what he called the burden of obligation, that is the burden to do good works, or the burden to be a good person, we might say in our language today, the burden of obligation, he said, for Christians is often rooted in heaven. And he said, I've made it my project to fix my good works here on earth. You see the contrast. Whitfield served God and the church, (coughs) and by extension, cared for the world. Whereas Franklin said, it is enough to care for the world, to just be this great man, which is the path that the Scriptures recommends to us? While, while we say that we're so thankful to Benjamin Franklin for all of his contributions to our society, Whitfield has the better course here because there is an order of operations. We see it in Galatians 6.10, that last verse that was read for us. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. There's an especially. There is a matter of focus. There is an order of operations. Why would Paul say, especially to those who are of the household of faith? He's talking about the church there. 
That's who we are to at first focus our good works on. Why? Because the church, the household of faith, is God's operation in the world. It's the, it's the starting point where His grace uh, meets the creation. It is His arm in the world. And so it answers the question for us and, and provides some relief and some focus for us with saying, what do I do first? Well, we be zealous, as Romans says here. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be, be fervent in the Spirit. Serve the Lord. Serve His church. And from that, God changes the world. There is an order here. The message is not, go out and be the best version of Ben Franklin that you can be. You probably won't invent as many things as he did, but you can do something. That would be one message that we could say, but that's not the message. The message is actually, be the church, and that is what the world needs. And it doesn't mean that it won't extend beyond the church. We're going to talk about that. But it means that there is first a focus here that then goes out. Here's what I want us to see. When we are zealous to serve the body of Christ, we create the culture that reverberates good works into the world. When we are zealous to serve the body of Christ, we create the culture that reverberates good works into the world. Because it's in the Christian community that we learn how to do good works. It's here. It starts in this place. The Christian community teaches us what to do, who to be, and then that leads to, thirdly, how to engage. What to do, who to be, and how to engage. So first, I want us to look at these first five verses in Romans. What to do. The church is the place where we learn what to do for good works. In these first five verses, Paul is talking here about the uh, the what's the charismata, the gifts. That's where we get the word charismatic. That's the the use of gifts. What are these gifts? They are endowments. They are the given things. They are special things that God has given to His church. Look at verse 4 with me of Romans 12. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. So Paul says we've been given these endowments that are unique, they are diverse, they are interdependent, meaning they are, each one of us has been given something that's different from other people, and yet we need one another, these abilities that we have. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is it that God has given to us to do for each other? How do I know, in other words, what my gifts are? And there's really three steps that he talks about here that we could follow to show as we discover our gifts. And the first step in knowing that is assessment of ourselves, of our character. Look at verse 3. He says, "For By the grace given to me, I say that everyone among you not, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And so we begin 
our discovery of our gifts, this, these endowments that God's given us, by taking a, a look at our lives, having sober judgment. We ought not to think too highly of ourselves. We also ought not to think too lowly of ourselves or to have a false modesty. Rather, we should have a sober judgment. We should have a realistic view of who we are, each according to the measure. Some people will be more gifted than other people. That is just true. Do we have that sober judgment? Are we able to assess what God has given to us? In pretty much every church I've ever been a part of, there's been those who have just wondered so much. Maybe they're, they're, they've hidden their gifts, or maybe they don't have a sober view of what their gifts are. But it begins with that. It begins with an assessment. Then the second thing is discovery. And here's where we look at what some of the gifts are. Look at verse 6 with me. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So Paul here gives seven gifts, prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, generosity, leadership, and mercy. But the main point of him listing this here is not to provide an exhaustive list. This is not an exhaustive list of all the gifts, and neither are the lists given in 1 Corinthians 12 or Ephesians 4 or hinted at in other places. There are other lists in the Scriptures that are different from this list, and the point is that there isn't an exhaustive list. We can't add up all the ones that are in the Bible and say, well, here are the 14 gifts or whatever. I don't believe. I think what Paul is saying here is here are some examples. This is a good starting point. I think it is helpful to think in terms of categories, and in general, when I look at those Scripture passages, I see four different categories of gifts. We could divide this in other ways too. This is just my way of, of understanding it. But in general, there are speaking gifts. That is teaching, exhortation, knowledge. There are leading gifts. That is shepherding, eldership, counsel, worship, there are serving gifts, that is mercy, hospitality, generosity, helps, and then there are administrating gifts, organizing, collecting, directing, and that's just some general categories, speaking, leading, serving, administrating. The point is, when we come to our lives, is there some sense that we have some assessment and we have some discovery. And you may have more than one of those, and you may not. You may only have one. How do you discover which ones that you do have? Well, there's some tests out there. I don't know how helpful they are, but they might help you a little bit. But what I found to be most helpful are these three things, that we pray over the, the list of the Scriptures that we see and then ask God to show us some insights, that we spend some time thinking about what it is that gives us life and energy and, and uh, where we feel a sense, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. 
That would be another way that you could do it. You could pray over it. You can think about what gives you that sense of direction and fulfillment. But the most important one is this, other people telling us what those gifts are. And this is the place where we need each other. As an example, I remember the very first time I ever preached a sermon in a seminary class. It was the first time I'd ever preached. I was nervous. It was terrible. I have the recording still somewhere buried in a closet. I haven't, I haven't, you know, it's been several years since I've had the courage to put it into a CD player, if I find it wherever a CD player is. Um, it was truly terrible. And, um, but I remember that after that experience, uh, the, the preaching professor where um, I went to school, he said, I mean, he saw something there, I guess, right? Because he said, you know, here's what you need to work on, all these things. And then he said, but you should do this. I mean, remember those words exactly. You should do this. And I remember the relief as I committed to four years of my life to study this. I thought that it was a burden of call in my life for this uh, ministry, and, but I didn't know, right? There was no way for me to know without somebody speaking into it. And when they did, I remember the relief and the encouragement to us is that we need each other to be able to tell each other what our gifts are, that we encourage one another. When you notice something, it could change the direction and focus of somebody's life when you say, I think you're really gifted at this. It did for me. Third is practice. Assessment, discovery, and practice. The way that we use these gifts is to actually use them. (laughs) Sometimes we talk about gifts so much and we don't use them. Look at verse 6. He says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Gifts must not stay in the discovery phase. They simply need to be put into practice. They need to be, you need to grind it out. And it is a grind, by the way. When you, it's not that you discover your spiritual gifts and then all of a sudden you're just floating from one place to another and everything seems to align and click and you're just thinking, well, this is what I was missing all along. No, it is a grind to use your gifts. But the goal is not self-discovery. The goal is helping the body. Do you see how he says this is what we're members of one another? Let's use them for each other is the point. Now, how does this tie in? At the risk of being overly obvious, I think it's important to say your gifts are how you do good works. Your gifts that God has given you, the, the, the things that He has endowed you with are how you begin to do good works. You want to be zealous for good works? Well, think first. Think first about what God has gifted you to do. And do them. And I want to give us a challenge this morning to say, don't wait for someone else to organize that for you. Don't wait for the church to organize around you. Sometimes we think, well, once we start a hospitality ministry, then I'll be hospitable. Or maybe you're considering uh, a calling on your life to be an elder or a, a deacon of this church or something in the future, and you think, well, I don't know, like, should I just wait until somebody says something? No, the answer is, shepherd someone now. Serve someone now. Invite someone over to lunch now. Don't wait for something to organize around you because 
The call this morning goes out to every single one of us, let us use them. Let's practice these. And, and just so you know, that, that's often the way that things do get organized. That is the way that when we notice what God is doing, hey, all these people are inviting people over after church or something, maybe we should start a hospitality ministry. We're here to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. That's Ephesians 4. We are here to help. But it's not though we're, as though we're setting all the things out and then, then everybody has to find a place in our system. It's that each one of us is called to serve. This is the way that we do good works. We look around at what God has given us to, to practice, and we practice it. So, in the church, we learn what to do. But secondly, we learn who to be. And this is the next section in Romans 12, where we move from specific gifts that are diverse to things that are universal. Look at verse 9 with me. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in the Spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. What we get here from Paul is not just the things that we need to do, but the type of people that we are to be. All Christians are to be this way. And in being these ways, we show good works to the world. We reverberate good works to the ends of the earth. There are three, you know, we might think of three categories here of, of being. First, that we're called to be loving. The first two verses talk about that. Being loving, that is affectionate towards one another. That is good work. And he says, let love be genuine. That is a unique thing that the, the Christian culture, the church, offers the world. A genuine love. Think about that. Where else do you find genuine love where you know this deep need that you have, this real ache? Who loves me? Who can put up with some of my foibles and inconsistencies? It's, you know, maybe I find it in marriage, which is a picture of the church, by the way. The church is a place for genuine love. So Paul prays, be this way, church. Be loving. Then he says, be devoted. A series of commands here to say that you need to do the hard things and solve problems. Even when there's an uphill battle, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, constant in prayer. These are not easy things. What he's saying is be the type of person with some resiliency, some backbone, that your faith is a devoted faith. When everyone else is troubled, you have a patience. You're fervent in the Spirit. You're zealous, he says. The word fervent there, it's the same word in the Scripture to be seething or boiling. Zealous and fervent. Glowing hot. And then he says, be loving, be devoted, be generous. Verse 13, he says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That is, all Christians are called to be giving, to do the good works that actually change the world is for us to give our time, our talents, 
our treasures. That's the way it's classically talked about. I think it's a good way. Specifically, giving away our resources and inviting people to our tables. And in so doing, there's a different culture there. Do you see that? That's how the world changes. I have a book. I haven't read it, uh, but the title is great. It's um, The Simplest Way to Change the World. It's about hospitality. It's about saying we're Christians and we can invite people into our homes. By the way, all three of these, these traits, these three B's that I'm talking about, are the reasons that the early church experienced white-hot growth. The Scriptures tell us that they were known for love. They'll know we're Christians by our love. Genuine love. We know for a fact that their zeal, their fervency, their devotion in the midst of tribulation was the reason that the church grew. It was the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. In that persecution, they say, well, these people are devoted. There's a culture here. They love one another and they're devoted to the truth. We also know that it was in their giving, their following of Jesus' commands. If a person asks for your cloak, just give them your, just give them your cloak. Don't ask for anything in return. The, the early church followed this radical generosity. They had all things in common. And there was this sense of, of shared table and shared life. And it changed the world. That culture... Not just people using their gifts, but being the church, which is so different than anything else in the world. And so it's in the church that we learn not just what to do, but who to be. And in doing those two things, as I've already hinted at, then we do the third, which is how to engage. Our culture, our love, our devotion, our fervency, our generosity, our using of our gifts, the creating this culture spills out into the wider world. The loving bounds of the church extend to everyone, to outsiders, and even to enemies. It's this gospel culture that heals the world. How do we engage? Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And so begins many commands here that seem extremely counterintuitive. They all seem to be backwards of what you would want to do. A summary of these final seven verses would be this. Bless everyone around you regardless of how they respond. Bless them. Do good. Remember Galatians 6.10? Do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith. Well, we've talked about the especially. How we serve one another. How we create this great culture. But let's talk about this. Be good to everyone. These good works are to spill out into the world. This culture to spill out. And Paul's very clear that the world will not always thank you for it. There's a connection here in verse 14 that doesn't, it's not obvious, but when you see it, it's pretty amazing. Verse, verse 13 says this, um, 
contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Verse 14 seems like it's a change of direction. Bless those who persecute you. What's the connection between those two verses? Well, actually, the word seek in verse 13 is the same word as persecute, used in a different sense. I know that seems strange, but here's how we might say it. Verse 13 is, you go after people to show them hospitality, but when they come after you to show harm, you bless them. Do you see the connection? As you go after people, you go after them for good. But they will come after you for harm. And this seems absolutely counter-cultural, counter-intuitive. Why would anyone do what Paul is saying here? And this is only the start. More and more he's going to say this, live peaceably with everyone, even with those who you disagree with. When you receive evil, don't repay it. For evil. So that means when, when you get a, a comment on social media negatively talking about your post, you don't respond with the same mean tone. When someone cuts you off in traffic, it doesn't mean that you respond in kind with gestures and tailgating and all kinds of things. This is countercultural. When, says, when someone says something unkind about you, you don't repay it with, with gossip that is intended to harm them as well. Again, why would someone do these things? And it doesn't just apply to people in general or people that you might have a slight disagreement with. It says enemies. Look at verse 20. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Feed your enemy. Give him water. And in so doing, you put burning coals on his head. Now, what does that mean? There's lots of different interpretations, as you might guess. Some say that this is a way that you can hurt your enemy without actually hurting him. You hurt them by being nice, in other words. There's a kind of secret vindictiveness. You can dump burning coals on someone's head. You're actually hurting them while you're being kind. I don't think that is what Paul is saying here. It doesn't make any sense with the other things that he's saying. Feed him. Give him water. What I think he's actually saying is this. This is a, a way that you get fuel to your home. You help someone by putting burning coals on the thing on their head, and they can take it home, and they have a fire. In doing so, he's, in other words, he's saying, if you do that, think about the opportunity you have to help someone to do good to someone. Again, why would anyone do that? I don't understand the logic. Why is he talking about this as if it's a privilege, as if it's an opportunity? Because that's exactly the way the Scriptures talk about it. It's exactly what God in Christ has done for you. It's exactly when you were an enemy. God fed you. He gave you water, the living water and the bread of life. Jesus embodied all of these counterintuitive commands from Paul. He was not haughty. 
He associated with the lowly. He rejoiced with the rejoicers. He wept with the brokenhearted. He was patient in tribulation. He was constant in prayer. And he heaped burning coals on the heads of his enemies, meaning he helped those who were his enemies. That's us. We were the enemies. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. That's at the very moment, the Scripture says, when we were rebelling against Him the most, that is when He redeemed us. When He lived for us. When He died for us. When He was raised to newness of life on the behalf of His enemies. This is the place where we learn the counterintuitive, the backwards way of living. It's in Christ Jesus. It is a culture that changes the world. Where else could we learn how to be so devoted and zeal? How else could we learn how to be so generous? It's not natural to us. to be. It's only by the transformation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we see now I have an abundance and a capacity to care for those who have set themselves against me. It's only in Christ because we received it especially when we didn't deserve it, when we were the enemies of God. probably remember the uh, Nashville school shooting from a few months ago. It was in March, I think. And some of you may not know, that was a church in our denomination. That's uh, someone who I was acquainted with, was a pastor there, lost his daughter. Three children killed, three teachers killed. And I remember... Uh, the funeral, reading about the funeral of, of one of the teachers, actually I think she was the director of the school, Catherine Kuntz, and her husband shared at, her, at the funeral, and this is what he said, a portion of, of what he said. He said this, Catherine, that was his wife, was a champion for others, and among the first to recognize when someone is isolated and lacking support, burdened by shame, Therefore, honoring Catherine compels us to remember a seventh family. There were six who were killed, right? No, he says there were seven. Who is he talking about? The shooter. Equally wounded in the loss of someone dear to them, we count on the Lord and our community to support them generously, extravagantly, and to offer them the hope that sustains We are trusting in the strong and loving embrace of a strong and loving God to take each of the seven that died and heal their wounds and their souls. Why would anybody say that? How can this man who has lost his wife and just this terrible situation, and by the way, that shooter was an enemy. Nothing wrong with calling her an enemy evil, unjustifiable, all the things that we can and should say about it, but in the midst of his own grief, here is a person who can say, I'm able to weep with those who are weeping that are my enemies. That kind of thing does not happen outside of the strength of Christ. There's simply nothing more powerful than that kind of sacrificial love that we find in Jesus Christ. That is a culture. And it's the only thing that that brings good to the world. It's that Christ culture. 
When we have that, we can share it with the rest of the world. Let's pray.